Hey there, friends. It's your buddy Dave, also known as LML. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, just just you and me here. Just you and us. Just the podcast audience. No, no PayPals or Super Chats. No YouTube madness. I just wanted to let you guys know, in case you haven't heard, I did start a new YouTube channel. It's called Mythic Concepts. And as the name suggests, it's, uh, it's a straight mythology channel. It's no Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, you know, for a long time I've been thinking about doing videos just on world mythology. Uh, but instead of mixing them into, you know, the David Lightbringer YouTube channel, I figured I would start a separate channel, keep it all clean, and, you know, I'm taking a more professional approach, you know, take me seriously, everyone, that kind of thing. Uh, doing my research, all that stuff. No, uh, no ancient aliens, no pseudo-Atlantis. It's, uh, you know, straight myth- mythology, and I'm trying to explain the concepts behind the myths, which is mostly what I've been practicing doing over the last few years with you guys. But uh, long story short, uh, I'm going to put those videos on this podcast feed. Why not, right? I don't have enough on this podcast feed anyway. And uh, as long as, you know, a lot of you guys that are patrons and support the program, this is one of your preferred methods to intake my material. So I figured I would, uh, you know, you're supporting my enterprise. This is part of the enterprise. So yes, here is the first Mythic Concepts Cully video. Now, if you do have time, I would appreciate it if you guys would go over to the Mythic Concepts channel, subscribe to the channel, like the video. Uh, it's, you know, it's a new channel. It's just getting off the ground, so it really means a lot right now. Plus, I did work really hard collecting a lot of art of Kali, which is pretty amazing, so it's worth taking a look at. And uh, I've also got all the references in there as well. I'm doing my research now, like I said, so there's a whole lot of references. So if you're interested in uh, further reading on the topic, then check out the description of the YouTube video for that. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that I am, at long last, working on putting more of the edited live streams onto the podcast feed. I'm picking some of the best ones and editing them. Editing them does take a while which is why I've been uh, concentrating on making new material instead. But there's a lot of good stuff that's going on on the YouTube channel, on the live streams. So I'm almost done editing one that has uh, quick Winds of Winter predictions for every character all at once in a three-hour live stream, which is now like two hours and a few minutes because I edited down lots of stuff. And uh, look for that pretty soon. And I will try to do one of those a month at least. Um, And I will still be making, you know, produced... A Song of Ice and Fire content as well. I'm just mixing in some real world stuff because let's face it, um, I've been thinking about A Song of Ice and Fire around the clock for seven years, at least eight years or something. And uh, I need a little bit of mental space so that I don't burn out and I can keep going and keep the torch lit until Winds of Winter comes out, which I do believe it will come out at some point. Yeah, I've talked long enough, but that's it. This is going to be the first Mythic Concepts video. So check it out. It's about Kali. And uh, I'll be, like I said, putting more live streams in the feed. I'll probably work in some of those Winds of Winter videos I did with Quinn two years ago. It's been two years since we did the Winds of Winter predictions. I've never put those on the feed. Those are edited. um, So I'll start sliding those in too. And I love you guys. Thanks for supporting me. Really appreciate it. I'm also working on the book as well, Paradise Gained. I'm back working on that. That's part of what led to the new YouTube channel. So continuing to do great things, hopefully, or trying to, and and appreciate all you guys supporting me. And uh, yeah, enjoy the Kali video or audio as it were.
of the biggest clues that mythology primarily evolved as a symbolic language to communicate ideas and concepts is the fact that it's so friggin' weird. Now, I mean no disrespect to the ancient deities of Egypt, Sumer, Greece, and elsewhere, but let's be honest, the gods and goddesses quite often look frankly bizarre, and the things they do often defy logic. That's only true upon first glance, though, when we try to read a mythical story like a literal description of people and events. Mythology does often contain references to real events, places, and people, to be sure, and it does often serve the etiological function of explaining the way the world works. Why the floodwaters or the drought came that one time, why the star fell from the sky, or why the kingdom collapsed, and so on. But when we take a look at a wild, unkempt, four-armed goddess carrying around things like a severed head and a bloody scimitar, a bowl of blood, she's wearing ragged tiger skins and severed body parts, not to mention trampling upon her husband, Shiva, her divine consort, we do have to wonder what exactly is going on here. I speak, of course, of Kali, Hindu goddess of death and time, whose image is so fearsome and terrifying that she was used as the basis for a demonic idol in the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is unfortunately how many people in Western countries may know of Kali. Without going into the somewhat problematic nature of that movie and much else from the 1980s, let us simply say that this was not a very good representation of Kali Ma, or Ma Kali as she's also known. Most people probably realize that, but what exactly is the point of all this gory death imagery and of the tales of Kali's relentless slaughter of demons who are called Asuras in Vedic literature? The answer is one of the most elegant attempts to grasp at the somewhat esoteric nature of existence itself that I've found anywhere in mythology. And that's why I chose to start my channel with a video about Kali. I'm David, by the way, and this is Mythic Concepts. Thanks very much for checking out the channel. So let's get busy discussing how the progression of cycles of time and personal evolution are kind of like having your head chopped off by the girlfriend of a character from Mortal Kombat. The most common depiction of Kali by far is some version of her trampling or dancing upon her husband, Shiva. There is some degree of variance as to what she holds in her four arms, and sometimes she's depicted with ten arms, but in all versions she holds a scimitar and a severed head, and sometimes she holds a bowl below the head to catch the dripping blood. She wears a cord of severed heads as a necklace, and a string of severed arms or hands around her waist as a macabre kind of skirt. Sometimes she's clad in ragged tiger skins, but more often she's depicted as naked, save for the body parts as jewelry. Her tongue is always lolling out, ever bloodthirsty, a not very hard to interpret symbol of her insatiable desire to destroy. And again, she's trampling on her husband, Shiva, who is often depicted as totally content with the arrangement, somehow. The most common explanation for Kali's trampling upon her husband Shiva has to do with her battle against the demon Raktabija, leader of the Asuras, so let's get to that. This tale was first written down between the 5th and 6th centuries CE in the Devi Mahatmaya, which is part of the writings known as the Puranas. Devi Mahatmaya is a Sanskrit phrase which means glory of the goddesses, and indeed, the Devi Mahatmaya is known for interpreting the primary forces of the universe as goddesses. So here's the setup. On one side, we have the Asura Raktabija, whose name means bloodseed. He's called that because of a boon he received from Brahma. If anyone strikes Raktabija, a thousand new Asuras spring from the blood that is spilt. 
Sort of like an even worse version of the Lernian Hydra from Greek mythology. If you're into chopping off Hydra heads, that is. I mean, I say, leave them be, but, you know, to each his own. In any case, Roctabesia's blood respawn trick makes him exceedingly hard to kill, which is why the gods have to call upon the terrifying fury of Kali to deal with the issue. But backing up a bit in the Devi Mahatmaya narrative, I need to tell you about the goddess Durga, also called Ambika, and both of those words derive from the same Sanskrit root, which means mother, mother goddess, or even warrior goddess. So here we come to one of the most, if not the most, confusing thing about Vedic mythology and Hindu religion, which is that many of the gods have many different forms. Or you might say that when you start researching one deity, they turn out to be an emanation or an incarnation of some other deity. And that's certainly the case with Kali and the goddesses of the Devi Mahatmaya. Now this works precisely because, on one level, the deities are always functioning as an expression of concepts, and concepts often overlap. So the apparent overlapping of the deities is simply a reflection of the concepts they represent. To the extent that mythology is a matter of coming up with esoteric metaphors to relate hard-to-express concepts, then it's totally fine for more than one deity or myth to deal with the same or related concepts. And oftentimes, local deities that express similar ideas end up being combined over time through a process of syncretism. And that too has happened all over India over the last several thousand years of continuous development of mythology and religion. So in the Devi Mahatmaya, for example, the supreme goddess of the universe is known as either Shakti or Devi, the Devi from Devi Mahatmaya. And Devi is just the singular female form of Deva. So this supreme goddess has three primary incarnations, each of which express slightly different ideas. There's Parvati, who is primarily a shining mother goddess of goodness and justice, Durga, the warrior goddess, and the terrifying Kali, who represents time, creation, and destruction. Or more specifically, the cycles of time which lead to creation and destruction. Parvati is also sometimes synonymous with the entire Shakti Ambika godhead. And again, I want to emphasize that as best we can determine, these have always been regarded as simply different emanations of the same all-powerful goddess. I further want to stress that goddess worship in general dates back to prehistoric India, back to the Indus Valley culture, and the traditions of Shakti, Durga, Kali, and Parvati certainly originated long before the Devi Mahatmaya was written. And by the way, I do plan to explore this topic in more detail in a future video when we talk about what parts of Indian mythology and Vedic mythology can be traced all the way back to the Harappan or Indus Valley civilization. That's going to be a good one, so make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Now, the Devi Mahatmaya is organized into three sections, each of which is dedicated to a different goddess form. And in the second, we hear of the creation of Durga. It seems the devas, or the gods, are having trouble battling a different demon. This one is Mahishashura, the buffalo demon. And Mahishashura literally means buffalo demon. The warrior champion of the gods, Indra, cannot seem to overcome this shape-shifting asura. And so the primary male trinity of Vishnu, Brahman, and Shiva, along with the lesser devas, combine their divine energy, their shakti, and create Durga. Durga, however, is not really seen as having been created by these gods, but rather having been manifested by them, as the feminine Shakti energy is here understood as the primeval force of the universe and the soul substratum of the world that animates the devas themselves, which the devas then simply channeled and focused together to manifest the form of Durga. Durga is part warrior goddess, as I mentioned, but 
one who is usually depicted as calm and serene amidst battle, with a subtle smile to rival that of the Mona Lisa. She's actually the quintessential protective mother goddess, usually called Ma Durga or Durga Ma, and she's quite popular in contemporary Hinduism, with the slaying of Mahishasura being celebrated in northeast India by one of the great festivals, which is called the Durga Puja. Durga is portrayed as having eight or ten arms, each holding a divine weapon of some kind, and she rides a lion into battle. After slaying the buffalo demon Mahishasura, Durga is given the epithet Mahishashura Mardini, which means slayer of, well, Mahishashura. So that brings us to part three of the Devi Mahatmaya, where once again the gods are hard-pressed against an Asura, with Raktabija now seemingly their toughest challenge yet. No matter how many devas wound him, his blood continues to spawn more Asuras, and the whole thing is spiraling out of control. When Durga rides out to battle Raktabija, she becomes so furious that she knits her brown together, and from her third eye springs Kali, an even more terrifying and furious form of the supreme goddess Shakti Ambika. Kali is able to overcome Raktabija's demon-spawning blood trick by lapping up his blood and his demon-spawn with her long, extending tongue as they fight. The narrative of the Devi Mahatmaya actually describes Durga and Kali fighting together, with Durga's lion roaring and filling the earth, and then Kali's scream even drowns out the lion's roar, so it's a pretty noisy affair. Durga wounds the demon with dart, thunderbolt, arrows, swords, and spears, while Kali bludgeons him with her skull-topped staff and wounds him with her spear, with Kali's tongue enlarging to capture any blood or new Asura spawn. In some folkloric versions of the story, Kali has a snake or jackals, which also help to drink up the blood and the newly spawned Asuras. Now here is where folklore and the text of the Devi Mahatmaya diverge pretty sharply. If you search Raktabija on the internet, you'll mostly get a version of the story where after defeating Raktabija, Kali becomes intoxicated with all the Asura blood that she's been drinking, and then begins a wild victory dance which shakes the entire universe. The gods plead with Shiva to do something about it, as Shiva is the consort of Parvati slash Durga slash Kali, and so he does. Shiva runs down from the mountains and lies down beneath Kali's dancing feet until she notices that it's her lover being trampled, at which time she calms down a bit and lulls her tongue out in embarrassment. Thus, the mystery of Kali's trampling of Shiva is explained. This ending, however, is not found in any Hindu or Vedic text. Now, I do want to be very clear here about not dismissing or even diminishing the value of such word-of-mouth folklore, especially because this story is known all throughout India and many people learn it growing up, and also because most of the early Vedic texts started as older oral traditions which were then later set down. However, I do want to clearly differentiate between this ending and the one in the Devi Mahatmaya, which is totally different. In the written text, Kali and Durga go on to slay a couple of more important demons and then simply withdraw back into the form of the Devi, the, the original goddess form. And then all the devas gather around and worship her and, and then they all eat ice cream or something. I don't know. It's, there's nothing about trampling on Shiva or Kali getting drunk with blood. It's, it's just not in there. It seems that what's probably happened here is that a different ending to the Raktabija story has arisen over time which attempts to explain the mystery of Kali trampling upon her husband Shiva. 
And in fact, there are two other folkloric explanations which are less well known that I will also mention a little bit later in the video. However, it's the explanation offered by the tantric traditions that seems to best unravel the esoteric riddle at the heart of this strange, strange image. And as you'll see, this more metaphysical explanation is also supported by older Vedic texts. Most everything about Kali seems to be an esoteric riddle, by the way, as the concepts this deity is expressing are some of the most abstract that humankind has ever pondered. So let's see if we can't unpack the concepts behind this mythology. So the first layer of what's going on in the Devi Mahatmaya is the thing I mentioned earlier. The authors were attempting to harmonize a somewhat male-dominated pantheon that developed in Vedic India, although the Vedas also do have their goddesses, it should be noted, with other possibly older or just different native traditions of goddess worship. Or perhaps we might say that the authors were simply trying to expand upon and play up the role of the goddesses in Vedic mythology, which then evolved into Hindu mythology. But as I mentioned, goddess worship has always had an important place in the practices of India's people. So the Devi Mahatmaya is the goddess's chance to shine in the religious texts. So you thought Vishnu, Brahman, and Shiva were impressive? Well, turns out, plot twist, the gods depend on the goddesses to bail them out of trouble. And more to the point of this esoteric mythology, the devas, the gods, would themselves be powerless or even inanimate and dead things without the Shakti power of the goddess, the feminine animating force of the universe itself. Of course, we should always keep in mind that ascribing things like gender to such abstract concepts as the supreme animating force of the universe or the supreme soul of the universe is just a convention. It's simply a means of talking about the harmonization or the interplay of opposing forces. We can see this idea directly expressed in the form of the Aradna Risvara, a deity form that combines Shiva and Parvati, split male and female right down the center. And again, the point has to do with unification, reintegration, and balance. So as I said, the gods and indeed all matter itself would be dead or inanimate without whatever the force that brings life to everything is. That's, that's the Shakti power. This is the true meaning of Kali dancing upon Shiva, according to tantric traditions. Kali represents the animating dance of life, and Shiva the inanimate thing that is brought to life. That's an oversimplified explanation, though. What we really need to understand is that Kali represents the emergence of cycles of time from the stillness of the cosmic void, the quiet, slumbering soul of the universe, which is what slumbering, dead, or reclining Shiva represents. The name Kali is actually based on two different Sanskrit words which sound the same and have become associated with one another over time. And thus, Kali means both she who is black, as well as she who is time, fate, and death, or even appointed time or the force of time. So think of Kali as the power needed to cause anything to exist at all, the thing which causes time to emerge from the non-existence of the void, whereas Shiva represents that void, or we might say he represents the quiet potential for things to exist from which Kali creates. The Hindu concept of existence is largely defined within the context of repeating cycles of creation and destruction, whether that be the ages of the world or the repeating cycles of reincarnation through which an individual moves. And if we were to picture those cycles as the wheels of a great cosmic bicycle, well then it's Kali who is pedaling that bicycle, the force of time. 
If you think about it, this is probably another reason for Kali's dancing. Dancing, or playing music, literally dictates time in the sense that it orders everything to a specific tempo. Thus, the goddess who causes time to move is a dancer. She's setting the pace and dictating the flow of reality itself. So here's where the death and destruction symbolism comes into the picture. If Kali causes the wheels of time to turn, then she is responsible for the creation and the destruction of everything. And indeed, Kali is regarded as existing outside of time, as the primordial force which existed before the universe began and which will still be there after everything ends. Thus, she is the creator and devourer of all things. And this is reflected in lines from the ninth chapter of the Devi Mahatmaya that praise the Devi with the words, Salutation be to you, who in the form of minutes, moments, and other divisions of time bring about change in things, and have thus the power to destroy the universe. And also with the words, Salutation be to you, who have the power of creation, sustenation, and destruction, and are eternal. This is why there are no birth of Kali stories, by the way. She only ever manifests from Parvati or Durga, or just kind of shows up when needed. So, what is the force that cannot be defeated, represented by Kali's unstoppable destruction on the battlefield? This thing, force things, devours, births, beasts, trees, flowers, knows iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. The answer is time. What does it say? I said time, time. Time is the answer. Or perhaps we might call it the inevitability of death that comes along with the existence of time. Although that probably would have been too wordy an answer for Gollum. One is reminded of the legend of Thor's three challenges that he faced in the castle of the giant, or Jotun, named Skirmir. One of the challenges pits Thor in a wrestling match against the oldest crone in the castle, whom Thor is unable to defeat hilariously, because the crone turns out to be old age itself which cannot be defeated and has never been defeated. So too is Kali invincible and ruthless in slaughter. Now, as I mentioned, the very oldest written records of Kali or goddesses who became synonymous with Kali support this tantric interpretation of Kali dancing upon Shiva. So the Rig Veda, which was set down somewhere between 1500 to 1200 BCE from older oral traditions, contains a hymn called the Ratri Suktam, which is sung to Ratri, goddess of night, who is understood as synonymous with Kali. This hymn is also sung to Kali, for example. The Ratri Suktam speaks of a sage Kushika who perceived the enveloping force of darkness while meditating, and thus invoked the name Ratri, which means night, as an all-powerful goddess, Ratri Devi. This holy darkness was called upon to free mortals from their fears and their bonds to the earth, and like Kali, was seen as possessing the all-devouring power of time. Worshippers of Ratri sought to manifest this devouring power to overcome fear and any obstacle that they may face. So conceptually, you can see that Ratri is very similar to Kali, and other Vedic writings attest to this as well. 
The Atharva Veda, which was likely the last part of the Vedas to be composed, somewhere between 1200 BCE and 1000 BCE, directly associates Ratri with several goddesses, including Durga. Then we have the Mahabharata, which was written between 400 BCE and 300 CE. And this text combines the names of Kali and Ratri into Kalratri, and she's very reminiscent of what we saw from Kali in the Devi Mahatmaya. She's showing up on the battlefield to battle various asuras and villains, her tongue lolls out, thirsty for blood, and most importantly, she's specifically associated with blackness and the eternal void, like Kali. The Rig Veda also mentions the goddess Nirti, who is the personification of death, decay, and destruction, and who may be either a predecessor to Kali or perhaps just a very similar deity expressing similar concepts. We'll talk more about Nirti in a moment, but I mention her now along with Ratri and Kalaratri to simply make the point that there is a continuity of thought about void goddesses that we can trace from the very earliest written records of Indian literature right up to the present. That's an awful lot of thinking about darkness. Wow, okay. Now, lest you think the message of Kali is overly depressing, remember that all of this destruction is also linked to cycles of creation and rebirth. And the idea of her driving cosmic time is intended to be paralleled to the cycles of personal growth, which are supposed to come from the studying of the Vedic scriptures. Most religions and spiritual practices are about self-improvement to some extent, and this is certainly true of Hinduism. And tantric traditions in particular are focused on using meditation to achieve spiritual liberation. The constant battles between the devas and the asuras are therefore generally understood to represent the good and evil instincts within mankind. Basically, any esoteric interpretation of Hindu folklore or scripture presumes this. Thus, we can begin to see Kali's relentless slaughter of Asuras as a representation of what we must do to free our higher selves, our good instincts, from encumbrance. We must ruthlessly seek to slaughter any signs of evil or deception inside of us. This is simply a metaphor to describe the essential practice of any kind of quest to obtain spiritual enlightenment or righteousness. It's the process of rooting out ignorance, selfishness, illusion and delusion, and anything else that causes us not to live up to our values, to fall short of our own moral compass, and to fail to reach our own potential. Thus, Kali represents not only the progress of physical time, but the progress of self-improvement, the opposite of Personal stasis, in other words, which is a kind of spiritual death or slumber. This stasis and complacency is what we must go to war against, says Kali. Through her bloody trappings, she's telling us that attainment of spiritual freedom comes only through the elimination of attachment and the destruction of false consciousness. That's what the severed head that she holds represents, by the way, false consciousness. And the sword she holds represents the knowledge that destroys illusion. This iconography portrays the process of self-improvement as active, bold, tumultuous, painful even a striking contrast to the stillness of Shiva's meditation. In the end, these two ideas are no doubt designed to work in tandem. The quiet reflection of meditation should lead to insight, and insight to action. And through this process, we are transformed. What I really like here is how the metaphysical interpretation of Kali dancing upon Shiva, the emergence of reality from the cosmic stillness, perfectly parallels the metaphysical interpretation of 
transformative action emerging from the stillness of meditation. I did mention that there are two other folkloric interpretations of Kali's dance upon Shiva. And although they're somewhat different from the tantric interpretation, they still work with the same idea of self-improvement or mastery of self. In both of these interpretations, Kali is understood as the destructive aspect of Shiva. When Shiva is portrayed as calm or peacefully reclining beneath Kali's furious dance, he's showing us mastery of his anger or darker thoughts. He's aware of these darker impulses, but remains in control, and he's unperturbed. Now, if we see Shiva depicted as being dead or in pain beneath Kali's feet, that's seen as an expression of Shiva losing control, with his dark side, or id, taking power. So, although different, you can see we're still dealing with the same concepts. Kali and Shiva are basically always working together to describe and depict the war that is the path to spiritual mastery. The iconography isn't all blood and battle, though. Kali also expresses the love of a mother with the hand signs or mudras that she's frequently making with her right hands. In her Dakshina Kali form specifically, the mudras are Abhaya, fearlessness, and Varada, blessing. This works as a promise of spiritual freedom and salvation to those who have the courage to seek ultimate truth. There's no real comfort in delusion, after all, so the message here seems to be something along the lines of, only the truth will set you free. Another important avenue for spiritual growth and perfection in Hinduism is, of course, reincarnation, with the idea being that the eternal soul is improved upon gradually through multiple life cycles. And those cycles of death and rebirth are, of course, powered by Kali. The garland of severed hands that she wears is specifically tied to the concept of karma and reincarnation. Hands are what you do work with, and this collection of hands represents the work of karma, the many lifetimes of work that it takes to achieve nirvana. The severing of those hands, accordingly, represents Kali's ability to bestow ultimate freedom from the binding of karma. By these means, Kali is seen as helping us to achieve enlightenment, not only by exhorting us to be ruthless in our quest to root out evil and delusion, but also by causing our souls to be reborn from the dissolution of death. Kali's eternal existence outside of time, outside of the veil of maya or illusion, which is the physical world, is what enables her to perform this function. This is actually the reason for Kali's nudity, by the way. She's uncovered by any sort of cloak of illusion, the ultimate personification of indestructible, eternal truth. Thus, Kali is perceived as beckoning us on our journey to find truth from a place which is actually the source of ultimate reality. For similar reasons, Kali is always described as black or dark blue. And again, Kali means the black one. And of course, the link between the great goddesses and the primordial darkness goes back to Ratri Devi in the Rig Veda. The symbolic implications of Kali's blackness thus are of prime importance, primordial importance, if you will and are spoken of often. The Mahanirvana Tantra, written in the 18th century, explains that just as all colors disappear in black, so all names and forms disappear in her. Sri Ramakrishna, an 18th century Bengali yogi and saint, similarly explains that, My mother is the principle of consciousness. She is Akanda Satchadananda, indivisible reality, awareness, and bliss. The night sky between the stars is perfectly black. The waters of the ocean depths are the same. The infinite is always mysteriously dark. This inebriating darkness is my beloved Kali. You can clearly recognize the language of creative chaos here. 
Kali's darkness represents things from which creation can emerge, like the ocean or space. Kali, therefore, represents the principle of consciousness that emerges from that darkness, an invisible yet all-pervasive and life-giving force. Sri Ramakrishna also describes Kali as the force behind the sun, which is a kind of Egyptian concept, if you're familiar with that. The thing is, to tap into that force, we must first submit to the destruction of ego. This is the dissolution of Kali, into which all names and forms disappear. And then in terms of reincarnation, we can imagine our souls sort of dissolving back into that dark ocean of Kali upon death, only to re-emerge, reborn from that ocean when we're reincarnated, just as the consciousness of the universe first emerged from that same void. The kindling of consciousness from the void and the spark of awareness itself is often likened to a fire or to a light that blooms in the darkness, and Kali is associated with exactly this sort of fire of awareness. The uncompromising truth which Kali offers is often likened to the fire of the sun, which burns away illusion like morning fog. Along the same lines, the very first written record of Kali, by name, associates her with a purifying fire, specifically the fire of ritual sacrifice. So again, we have this idea of purification through destruction and dissolution. This text is the Mundaka Upanishad, dating approximately to the 5th or 6th century BCE, and it names Kali as one of the seven quivering tongues of the fire god, Agni, whose flames devour the sacrifices intended for the gods, thereby transmitting them up to heaven via the rising smoke. Obviously, you'll notice the connection between the lolling tongue of pretty much all Kali depictions and the idea of her as a tongue of the consuming fire god. There's also a deity mentioned in the slightly older Jaminya Brahmana, dated to the 8th century BCE, called Durga Jivi, and the spelling is a little bit different than the uh, regular Durga. And this means the long-tongued one, and this is thought to be an early form of Kali, or perhaps an older goddess whose mythology became combined with Kali over time. Durga Jivi is an ogress who drinks up all the soma produced by the holy yagna ritual of the devas, which causes the devas to become weak. So you can see the similarities to the slightly later concept of Kali as a tongue of holy fire, which devours the sacrifices intended for the gods. Instead of the soma-stealing instrument of chaos from this earlier tale, Kali is now simply consuming, metabolizing, and then transmitting the essence of the sacrifice up to the heavens. You can see how this concept of holy, consuming fire leads us right back to the concept of dissolution, which means it's time to talk a little more about Nirti, the goddess of death, decay, and destruction that I mentioned a little earlier that appears in the Rig Veda. The Sanskrit word Nirti is translated as decay, and it's derived from Nir, which means to separate. Think dissolution. And Nirti can also be translated as a lack of order or a state of disorder. So again, think of the whirling pool of primordial chaos from which creation emerges. Nirti seems to specifically embody the dissolution end of this process. Just to uh, drive the point home, the Vedas also use the word Nirti in lowercase form to indicate a realm of non-existence and absolute darkness. The void, essentially. Like her sister void goddess, Kali, 
Nirti is described as having dark skin and additionally dressing in dark clothes. There's a Hindu Shakta poet from the 18th century named Ramprasad Sen. And by the way, Shakta poet just means that he follows Shaktiism or the worship of Shakti, the divine goddess. He's also from Bengal, like Sri Ramakrishna, and he associates Kali with the cremation ground, which builds on the concepts of fire and dissolution that we've just been talking about. I'd like to go ahead and read this poem, as it's especially beautiful, if slightly macabre. And the untranslated Indian word at the end, prashad, means a ritual sacrifice, usually in the form of a food. O Kali, thou art fond of cremation grounds, so I have turned my heart into one, that thou, a resident of cremation grounds, may dance there unceasingly. O Mother, I have no other fond desire in my heart. Fire of a funeral pyre is burning there. O Mother, I have preserved the ashes of dead bodies all around, that thou may come. O Mother, keeping Shiva, conqueror of death, under thy feet, come, dancing to the tune of music, Prashad waits with his eyes closed. So you can kind of see what's going on here. The metaphor of the heart as cremation ground is a reference to the holy fire of Kali, which burns away all the bad things that we were talking about earlier. False consciousness, illusion, base desires, selfishness, and so on. This inner fire that Kali bestows to her devotees has a specific name, which is Gayan Agni, which means fire of knowledge. And you can see the name Agni of the fire god in that word, Gayan Agni. So this is the sun-like aspect of Kali's truth, which burns away all illusion that we spoke of a minute ago. So once again, you can see how all of the concepts behind Kali's symbols complement one another. And now you can make sense of all the death and gore that pervades her imagery and her stories. Now you know there's nothing to fear. Nothing but the truth, that is, which on one hand is kind of like a sword. Sharp, cutting, inflexible, but which also promises a kind of spiritual freedom the ultimate spiritual freedom, which can only be won through courage. Kali offers us blessing and courage with her right hands and offers us the sharp tools of freedom with her left. Dancing Kali, pedaling her cosmic bicycle, powering the cycles of time, existence, and reincarnation of which our world is made. Kali, the divine mother who gave birth to all and who waits at the end to welcome us back home, back to the primordial sea from which our consciousness first arose. That's Kali, one of my favorite god forms, and hopefully she's one of your favorites too. And uh, shout out to Pale Horse Designs who did this awesome Kali artwork on the wall here. Until next time, I'm David. This has been Mythic Concepts. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.